Welcome to Bitchy History, the irreverent history podcast that is of the bitches, by the bitches, and for the bitches. And that's a good thing. Here we are at episode five of the second season, and I'm not going to apologize for missing a week. I had to put up peel and stick wallpaper at my parents' new office, and let me tell you, I will never do that again. Peel and stick makes it sound fun and easy, like a sticker. I nearly lost my mind and set fire to the entire mural. After that, I was useless for at least two days and refused to mess with recording anything. As I've mentioned before, the whole ethos of this podcast took a decided shift at the start of the season. I decided to focus the show on something that truly fits the title, women's history. There's a long history of oppressed groups reclaiming the slurs aimed at them. The LGBTQ plus community and the word queer, for instance. I happily use the term to describe myself, but I know that some older members of the community still have mixed feelings about the word. And the word bitch is another slur that's being reclaimed by an oppressed group, this time women. Back in 2020, I read an article by Jennifer Fitta titled, Reclaiming the Power of the Word Bitch. And while it didn't really say anything I hadn't thought before, because I'd already become well accustomed to the idea that women get called a bitch when they're asserting power, having a strong opinion, or refusing to give in to a man's demands, but I really liked the way that she redefined the word in this article. Bitch. Noun. A powerful woman who stands firm in her position despite adversity and opposition. Bitch. Verb. To express power or strength in one's position. So for me, being a bitch is a power move. Being called a bitch by the kind of men that use that sort of language against women means I've done something right. Or as someone on Tumblr once put it, if I've learned anything from video games, it's that when you meet enemies, it means you're going in the right direction. And that's kind of the whole ethos of bitchy history. To stand up, stand firm, and speak truth about history, whether that history is popular or not. And there's a lot of history that isn't popular these days. So at first, the bitch in bitchy history was just me. But over the past year, I've found that women's history is a passion that I want to explore more, even more than I have in the women's history course that I teach at university. The podcast listeners who know me personally have become well acquainted with my rants about women's history, gender studies, and sexism. Several of them also got press-ganged into reading over a PhD proposal of mine on exactly these issues. And honestly, the connection between bitch and the oppressive treatment of women historically just made it obvious that I should shift the main purpose of this podcast to something that specifically dealt with the history of women. But what is women's history and why do we study it? I always start my women's history class off with a meme of a smug-looking white boy asking, why women's history? Why don't we have men's history? Mostly because I think it's funny, but also because it raises the very important point of why we even have a women's history class. And like I do with my college kids, I think I'll start there. In fact, most of this episode is ripped directly from my introductory lecture. Hey, work smarter, not harder, right? I already did this once, might as well repurpose it. So the first thing to really address, I think, is why there is a need for a topic like women's history at all. After all, history is history. It all happened in the past, and shouldn't a history class be enough to cover it all? We already split it up into European history and American history and Asian history. Isn't that enough? Well, no, actually it's not. 
Traditional approaches to teaching history have, for much of the history of academia, tended to focus on the very male-dominated histories of politics, religion, and war. That doesn't mean that women didn't play an important part in those histories, but their voice has usually been lost in the telling of those histories, either because men took credit for their contributions, their records were not considered important enough to preserve, or and this is the most frustrating of the problems, the records are moldering away in an archive, untouched and unexplored by historians because women's history has been seen as unimportant by what has been largely a boys' club of historians. In recent years, we are seeing a major flip in that, though, by the way, with a much larger number of degrees in history being awarded to women than they have been in the past. I look forward to the future where my field will be dominated by women. Let's try a girls' club of historians for once, maybe. Just a thought. But back to my point. Take a look at the bestsellers in the genre of historical nonfiction. I almost guarantee that at least 75% of them, at minimum, will focus on war or the great men of history. The best-selling history books on Amazon for December of 2022 were 90% books related to World War II because apparently... All of our dads are cramming for some World War II quiz show. <laughs> And I can't wait to watch it. We're just going to change channels and see our dads winning $900,000 on Normandy trivia. But that's another topic altogether. When so much of historical interest centers the history and contributions of men, it can start to feel like women never did anything in history except stay home and mind the children, which couldn't be further from the truth. I won't go into my overview of some of the great women of history here, like I do in my women's history course, because many of them will get episodes of their own in the future. But suffice to say, it's a pretty cool list that includes everything from women who ran black markets, snipers who took out Nazis, and ballet dancers who raised money for the Dutch resistance. Standard history classes have been getting a bit better about not forgetting that women exist, but the fact is that women's history isn't just about the great women of history either. It's also about the very different social and cultural paradigms that impacted women throughout history, which is another reason why a women's history class exists, and for that matter, why we have classes that focus on queer history and African-American history. It's well worth our time to focus the lens we view history through, not just on the contributions of women, but also on how the structures of the world have controlled, disenfranchised, and shaped narratives about women. One of the major reasons we have to course-correct historical education this way is because of something called structural bias, which is a term that can have a lot of definitions, but in the case of history, it's related to unexamined norms and the assumptions and beliefs we hold without any real proof. Or in the words of Mark Twain, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble, it's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Many of us have things that we just know. Maybe we heard it repeated over and over again. Maybe we saw it on TV or read it on Facebook. Maybe a trusted friend or teacher or parent told it to us. This is how we end up with ideas like women didn't work in the old days or people got married so much younger in the dark ages when those simply aren't true, but they sound right, so we perpetuate them. Part of studying women's history is breaking down these structural biases that we've all absorbed over the years. But another major part of it is breaking down the narratives about women that have crept into the way we talk about them. A few years ago, on a previous podcast that I used to run, I did an episode for Women's History Month that focused on three particular women, Agnes Sorrell, Leda Godiva, and Phryne of Athens. If you look up historical depictions of these women, you'll find out that these three have one thing in common, nudity. 
At the time I did the podcast, Agnes Sorrell was the focus of a particular meme that was going around on the internet, which juxtaposed the oft-repeated and entirely false idea that women in the past were more modest with the fact that Agnes Sorrell in the 15th century had a favorite boob and got her dressmakers to make dresses that left that boob uncovered. An amusing meme, to be sure, and one that had the right idea, debunking that stupid idea about the modesty of the past, but very poor execution. Because A, the idea that she had her dresses tailored to expose her favorite breast is likely not accurate. At least I can't find any source for the claim. And B, the least interesting thing about Sorrel was her propensity for showing off the goods. This was France, after all. That wasn't the cultural no-no we think it was at the time. Agnes was the 15th century mistress to King Charles VII of France. She posed for the painting The Virgin Child Surrounded by Angels by painter Jean Fouquet, which utilized the very popular nursing Madonna motif of the era. Hey, I'm not saying she didn't show off the goods, just that she didn't have her dresses tailored to do it. Also, the painting isn't sexual. Don't make it weird. She gave birth to four of King Charles' children and died at the age of 28. In 2005, research began to indicate that rather than dying of dysentery, as was the original belief, she was possibly murdered. A French forensic scientist suggested in 2005 that Agnes died of mercury poisoning. If she was murdered, why? Well, it might have something to do with the fact that her role in court had provoked some anger at the time. As a young woman with no political experience, she was advising and swaying the king on matters of state, which wouldn't have made his formal advisors, you know, men, very happy generally. Both Lady Godiva and Fine of Athens have similar sources of fame to Agnes. Lady Godiva isn't famous for being a wealthy landowner in her own right and patron of religious houses like the Benedictine Abbey of St. Mary in Coventry. No, she's popularly remembered only in the context of her asshole husband, Earl Leofric, and her nude ride through Coventry to get him to lower the burdensome taxes he'd placed on the people. A story most likely first written down by a dude who lived nearly two centuries after the ride supposedly took place, by the way, which makes it very possible that the entire thing was the product of Roger of Wendover's overactive imagination and weird sexual fantasies. Phryne of Athens was an accomplished woman, a courtesan, which meant that in comparison to most women in Athens, she lived a life of freedom. She was educated. She could argue philosophy and art with men. She was incredibly wealthy. So wealthy, in fact, that legend says that she once offered to pay for the reconstruction of the walls of Thebes after they were destroyed by Alexander the Great. But what she's most remembered for in history isn't any of that. In fact, it's a likely apocryphal story, just like Godiva and Agnes, that she's remembered for. The story goes that she was the model for a statue of Aphrodite sculpted by Praxiteles, which is likely how she ended up in court with a charge of impiety for daring to be the model for a statue of a goddess. I feel like Praxiteles is more at fault here, but he's a man. They weren't going to punish him. At court, her lawyer decided to save her life by tearing her dress off in front of the jury. Some versions have her disrobing herself, which I guess is better, because he believed that once they saw her beauty, they would understand why she'd been the model and would be so impressed that they would decide they couldn't kill someone so beautiful. I chose those three stories for that particular episode for one specific reason. Each of these women were, by all surviving accounts, women with many good qualities. They had intelligence, wit, political savvy, strength, money. They found a way to take leadership in a world where the political and social structure was set against them. And what do we remember them for? Having really great tits. And that's about as damning a commentary as you can get on the history of women as it's existed throughout modernity. Another take on this same issue is the popular history of Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII's second wife. 
Many of the classic views of Anne have painted her as a seductress, a power-hungry, gold-digging homewrecker. However, historians like Haley Nolan in her book, Anne Boleyn, 500 Years of Lies, question that narrative. I won't go into that book in detail, but I'll provide a link to it in the recommended reading in this episode's Substack post. So that gives you an overview of the major ideas of why we study women's history. Now let's talk about how the field of women's history came to exist. There's a French term, which I absolutely won't try to pronounce because it would embarrass all of us, which translates as history seen from below and not from above. And that's really where the concept of telling the history of the people rather than the great men of history begins. The term first began to be used in the 1930s as historians began to tell the history of the masses and not of the starlets. E.P. Thompson, an English historian, popularized the term among historians in his 1966 essay, History from Below. During the 1960s and 1970s, many subsets of historians began to break away from the great man theory of history and began to explore the history of the masses, especially in Britain where the history workshop movement of Raphael Samuel, who worked to democratize history, began. While this movement at first focused on the history of working class people, it would eventually become the ground from which women's history would spring. British feminism and historical inquiry became intrinsically linked because of the history workshop movement, with many of the overlapping members working to uncover the quote-unquote hidden histories of women's lives. The history workshop movement would spread from Britain to many other countries, including America. During the 1960s, the second wave of the feminist movement was just beginning to really gain steam here in the United States. Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique is published in 1963, a direct response to a book I've mentioned before on the show, Modern Woman, The Lost Sex, and Gloria Steinem founds the Women's Action Alliance in 1971. Feminism is growing as a movement, and historians who are researching women's history are beginning to outline a project to restore women to the history of the world. This initially starts out with historians combating the great man theory of history with the obvious corollary, the great woman theory of history. Historians begin to work on writing the history of the major female actors who played critical roles in history. Joan of Arc, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Sylvia Pankhurst, those sorts of women who are the counterparts to the men who have dominated the historical narrative for so long. Of course, eventually historians began to realize the inherent flaw in this as well. The great man theory of history is a horrible one. So too is the great woman theory, though of course a necessary evil in the start of a new form of historical inquiry. It wasn't enough to study the actions of the female public figures in history. The private sphere was where most women had lived throughout history, and that needed to be considered as well, as did how events throughout history impacted and changed the lives of women specifically. This leads to a new interest in writing history related to the family structure, childbearing, and the history of birth control. The study of women's history also found that the political, public, and private spheres were more intertwined than anyone had previously thought. Women's history pays close attention to the ways that political controversies and state policies shaped women's intimate lives and how their actions in turn could stir up political controversy and drive policymaking. Historians began to realize that any number of events could be seen from an entirely new perspective when looking at them through the lens of how history affected women's lives. One example I use in my women's history class is that of the Cold War. Most textbook histories of the period revolve around the political, economic, philosophical, and military elements of the Cold War, which are all valid and critical issues. However, if we shift our position to look at the history of women during this period, we see a new narrative begin to form. 
Narratives like how the birth control pill impacted the lives of women in countries that were at the heart of the proxy wars between the USSR and the United States. The Cold War era influx of Western aid for family planning programs in these countries was driven in part by a fear that if these countries saw too much population growth, it would cause a destabilization of their economies, which might lead them to turn to communism. In America, the birth control pill also drastically changed women's lives. It decreased family size, increased participation of women in the workforce, and gave us an altered view of sex, which had major consequences for the shaping of American society in future decades. Women's use or non-use of birth control took on many social and political implications. While these processes aren't as easy to document as the chronology of the Cold War confrontations, for many, they impact daily life as much, if not more, than the grandstanding of political leaders. And now I'd like to take some time to discuss one of the founders of the women's history movement here in the United States, Gerda Lerner. In 1963, while she was still studying at the New School for Social Research, she taught Great Women in American History, which is considered to be the first regular college course on women's history offered anywhere in America. Born in 1920 in Vienna, you can guess at some of the experiences she would have had as a young Jewish woman who did not move to the United States until 1939. But you don't have to imagine. You can read her autobiography, Fireweed, which she published in 2002. She didn't start her academic career until she was 38, and she earned both a BA and a PhD in only six years, an absolutely absurd timeline as anyone in academia can tell you. Goethe wrote her PhD dissertation about the white abolitionist Grimke sisters, children of South Carolina slaveholders who were stars of anti-slavery activism of their era, as well as early women's rights advocates. She would go on to play a key role in the development of women's history programs and curriculum at a number of universities, including Sarah Lawrence and the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which had the first PhD program in women's history. She was also co-founder of the Seminar on Women at Duke University and Columbia University. And here's a couple of my favorite clips from interviews with her. And uh, for women, the uh, looking back to the past has usually been painful because what we would, would learn would be an absence. We would learn that women had not done this and they had not done that and that essentially uh, according to the traditional view, women had contributed very little to mm -hmm. the making of human society and even less to the making of the intellectual product of Western civilization. Now, I knew that not to be the case. I knew that that was false. I've been working for 30 years in the field of women's history. And the fact is that women do have a history, that they have participated in making history, but that we have not, until very recently, uh, recognized that. And that has created enormous problems for society as a whole, for both mm -hmm. men and women. And that is one of the worst effects of this omission, that women have no heroines. Uh, I always cite as an example that the only heroine that women of my generation and up to my generation uh, grew up with was uh, Joan of Arc. Mm -hmm. And we all knew how what end she came to. That's not a very desirable model. Mm -hmm. The effect on men has been very bad, too, mm -hmm. of the omission of women's history, because men have been given the impression that they're much more important in the world than they actually are. And that's not a good way to uh, become a human being. Mm -hmm. 
it has fostered illusions of grandeur in every man that are unwarranted. Mm -hmm. If you can think as a man that everything great in the world and in civilization was created by men, then naturally you have to look down on women. And naturally you have to have different aspirations for your sons and for your daughters. And I don't think that's good for men either. I would definitely recommend picking up a few books by Lerner if you're interested in women's history as a field of history. I'll have links to a few of your books in the substack for today's episode. Women's history has gone through a number of evolutions as a field, from the new social history of the 1960s, which arose from the civil rights activism of the era, to the more modern discussions of gender identity that have become part of the discussion since the 1990s, with contributions like Judith Butler's Gender Trouble, Feminism, and the Subversion of Identity in 1990. We act as if that being of a man or that being of a woman is actually an internal reality or something that's simply true about us, a fact about us. Actually, it's a phenomenon that's being produced all the time and reproduced all the time. So to say gender is performative is to say that nobody really is a gender from the start. I know it's controversial, but that's my claim. The field of history has come a long way in the last 60 years, but courses like women's history are still very much a necessity because the lives of women are still criminally underrepresented in historical dialogue. In a couple of months, I'll be having another historian on the show whose main focus is the history of ordinary women in France and the work she's done uncovering the records of those women's lives that have sat in archives waiting for someone to find them and use them. Because women have always been here and we weren't bystanders to history. There is still more to uncover when it comes to the history of women and how that history is still affecting our lives today, like why structural inequalities persist even in countries where legal equality has been reached, how women and gender more broadly have impacted foreign policy and government policy, how reproductive rights impact society and women's lives. Through these lenses, we can study history, but also fundamentally change our understanding of current events and the future. And that's what we need to do if we want the world to become a better place for all people to live in, not a regressive hellhole that only benefits straight white men. Thank you for tuning in once again to hear me bitch about history, or in this case, the history of history, I suppose. Next week, I'll be back with a new episode on a very interesting topic that is highly topical to the holiday season, the satanic panic. Yet somehow that topic will also link to women's history as well. The podcast is growing and apparently gaining a reputation, or maybe I'm gaining a reputation. Either way, I'm hoping it's a good one and not a, oh my God, hide your daughters and wives before she infects them with feminism reputation. I mean, I will do that, but I'm hoping everyone agrees that that's a good thing. I'm hard at work on a series about the witch trials that I'm trying to get out before Halloween, though my schedule has been hellish and there's definitely some possibility that I won't make that deadline, just so you know. Have a great week and I'll see you next Monday. Mm -hmm.